Hi, everyone, and thanks for coming back to Conversations at the Perimeter. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Estelle Inak. She's a research scientist here at Perimeter, and she's also the co-founder and chief technology officer of the company Yiyani Q. I love this conversation with Estelle, partly because I found it a little challenging. The terminology like artificial intelligence and machine learning and neural networks, these are terms that I've, I've come across before in, in our work, but they get thrown around a lot in popular culture. And it was great to hear from an expert who's working not just in these fields, but really finding the intersections between these fields. She was a very generous tour guide with us. I agree. And I really also loved hearing about how her work is really at the intersection of quantum science and artificial intelligence, but also at the intersection of academic research and industry applications. And her personal story is is pretty amazing, too. You know, she's she's a scientist who's now working in a startup. She's trying to learn the business world. Estelle just has a fascinating personal story as well. She's originally from Cameroon. And uh, she originally wanted to do something completely different than physics. We won't give any spoilers, but her journey into physics was really fascinating, especially because she faced quite a lot of obstacles in her native Africa to becoming a physicist. And we learned that she's actually gone back to Africa to try to help inspire other women scientists there. We're excited for you to hear the conversation. Let's step inside the perimeter with Estelle Inak. Okay, hi Estelle, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to have you here. It's my pleasure. So you work in a really exciting field that's also pretty new, or at least rapidly growing, that is often called quantum intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit about what draws you to this field and why it's so exciting? So it's basically a very fancy name that uh, means a lot of different things, depending on how you take different combinations of artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So for example, for some people, it might mean using quantum computers to perform artificial intelligence tasks in a field that they call quantum machine learning. For other people, it could mean using quantum computers uh, with artificial intelligence for quantum control, for example, for quantum state preparation. For other people, it could mean using machine learning techniques that you borrow from um, AI research to basically probe the behavior of quantum body system. And this is more of uh, the field where I am now borrowing machine learning techniques to probe the behavior of quantum body systems. You mentioned a few terms there that I'm hoping you can elaborate on a bit. A lot of people have heard the term artificial intelligence. It's very much in the news. I think a lot of people have heard the term quantum computing, maybe a little bit less so in the, in the public consciousness. Can you tell us what those are and, and how you're sort of bridging the two fields? Yes, so there are so many different ways, as I mentioned, the different fields of bridging the two fields. So quantum computers, for example, is just a different way of computing, a different paradigm. It's using some of the properties of quantum physics to hopefully speed up some calculations that are currently untractable on, on the current class of computers that we have. Some people used to call that like the second quantum revolution because already with the current computers that we have, we already use quantum mechanics to have mm-hmm. transistors. But now we want to use to leverage other properties of, of quantum system, either entanglement, superposition, quantum tunneling, to yeah, have some speed up on some algorithm like the Schwarz algorithm, for example. So it's a totally different kind of paradigm. Now, actual intelligence is, in general, basically thinking about having an intelligence that is not human, that is able to perform human-like tasks. 
right? And under it, you can actually write some algorithms that, that we do that. And you have machine learning and you can have neural networks that are kind of, generally people think of it like representation of the brain, even though sometimes it's, it's not like that. Even though it's, it's remarkable to see that some of the intuition behind things like conversational neural networks is basically how we see to basically come with the design of that kind of deep neural networks, basically to be able to do image recognition, for example. So that's basically two different communities and a lot of subfields within those communities. And now within the subfields, yeah, you can find some correlations. I will tell you, for example, one of the correlations that I'm mostly familiar with in simulating quantum body systems on what we call classical architectures, like your laptop or whatever class that we are using here at Perimeter, right? So for us to be able to simulate quantum body systems are different methods. One of the popular methods uh, is a quantum Monte Carlo method called variational Monte Carlo. And to use that, you need to be able to have what is called an ANSAT, which is just a good guess of what the ground state wave function of your quantum body system is. But to have this good guess, you need to understand the Hamiltonian or the physics of the problem at hand. Is it fermions? Is, is it bosons? Right? What are the interaction strengths? What is uh, the Hilbert space? Is it a Fox space? Right? And based on that, on the symmetries of the system, you come up with a good answer. Now, not everybody can do that. Right? You really need very specialized knowledge. And the moment you perturb the Hamiltonian, that you go to another Hamiltonian, Maybe it's totally out of your field. If you leave fermions, you go to bosons, you don't get the intuition anymore. So the idea of neural networks, that is borrowing like some knowledge from neural networks since they are universal approximators and hopefully they should be able to represent any kind of function, then why not representing then the ground state wave function of a minibody system? That was the original idea of borrowing this kind of uh, neural network to basically perform quantum minibody simulations. And even though nowadays we see that we still need a little bit of quantum intuition to make it work perfectly, like you need knowledge of symmetries, for example, to encode it in a neural network to make it represent your, your system in, in a much better way. But yeah, so the story is that, yeah, we saw how it was working amazingly well in machine learning, and it is also starting to work quite well. You and I, Estelle, we actually work in similar research areas. You kind of said already, we're both part of this Perimeter Institute Quantum Intelligence Lab. We have our matching hoodies today. Green Yay. hoodies, <laughs> because the acronym for that institute is... Is Pickles. So pickles. they have to be, everything's green at the Pickle. P-I-Q-U-I-L. <laughs> and I think something that's pretty unique about this group, at least compared to maybe other research groups at Perimeter, is that there tends to be a lot of opportunities for collaborations with industry. So can you talk a little bit about that and um, what maybe could be unique or what's important about these academic and industry collaboration? Definitely. What is unique, first of all, is the field. The field, as I mentioned, we are using a lot of state of machine learning techniques, which we know industry use a lot. Facebook, Google, they have huge research groups that publish a lot of papers. So Already in that sense, we, just by using those tools, we are already somehow in between uh, industry research and uh, academia research. Are those classical machine learning techniques? No. Those are classical machine okay. learning And even though now a lot of those big companies are having quantum groups as well, and they are developing quantum machine learning techniques as well, and a lot of startups as well. 
So the field of quantum computing is being pushed forward both by academia and industry. And the picker is trying to bridge, I mean, those two worlds and to provide a platform where academia can talk to industry and, and vice versa. And uh, together working on the projects, we can speed the rate with which we advance things. I often think of it like an area with many bridges, right? Because you're trying to bridge academia and industry, but also quantum with machine learning. Exactly. Lots of different bridges you have to go over. Exactly, exactly. And one interesting thing that has uh, come up in the last few years is physicists are thinking of actually importing some of the methods that we have been using to propound matter to the machine learning community. I think of TensorNet, for example. They're like, oh, we have a very good understanding on these tensor networks. We, understand, we can interpret them instead of using your black boxes. So maybe you could use that for, I don't know, image recognition. And people have been doing that and, and it's working. So it's also a way for the physics community to somehow give back to the AI community. You mentioned that uh, what brought you to Perimeter in, in the first place was, was looking at Roger Melko's work. And now Roger is... He's the head of Pickle, the, the quantum intelligence lab. Can you just give us a sense of what it's like at, at Pickle? What, what, is a, what is a day like at the Pickle? What are the sort of questions and problems that are being tackled there? Pickle is really like a startup-like kind of environment. Even though there's industry and academia there, there's a lot of free discussions. We have journal clubs. It was virtual during, during COVID. Now you are starting to come back person. A lot of discussions over Slack. Oh, this is a new paper. What do you think of? Oh, I have a problem in my research. Do I have a solution for that? And things like that. So really a lot of interaction. And so you first came here to Perimeter, maybe to pursue more the academic side of things. But as time has gone on, you've become more and more involved with industry. And now you're actually the co-founder and the chief technology officer of a company called Yiani Q. Can you tell us a little bit about your company and what it's trying to do? Definitely. Maybe I will take a step backward a little bit. I was doing my PhD and then I was doing my postdoc. So I was mostly focused on academic work. But even though I was focused on that, my specialty is developing algorithms to solve optimization besides probing the behavior of quantum immutable systems. But optimization problems are like real world problems. But typically the way we solve it is, okay, like physicists, we like to have like a very easy model that we can benchmark and things like that, that is not really realistic. It's not going to affect the, work, the life of somebody. And so I always had behind my, my mind, in the back of my mind, that these algorithms, we could actually try to use them to solve real world problems, not just write it at the end of the conclusions of our papers that, oh, you can use it to solve a real world problem. So I had that in the back, back of my mind. And yeah, so last, I think, one year and a half, we had these uh, very nice results on, of an algorithm we designed. And we decided to, to basically uh, file a patent of it. And that was the moment I was like, okay, now we need to try to commercialize it and see whether we can have real-world impact. And we created Yanni Cube. So the company right now is focusing on uh, designing what we call quantum intelligent algorithm to basically speed up derivative pricing, which is a specific problem in um, quantitative finance, in the sell side of financial market. In the beginning, I was very much confused. I had a hammer. I didn't know why it's finding nail. So <laughs> there are so many different 
optimization problem out there. Some are very interesting, some are very challenging, others are boring. I really needed to find one that was challenging enough. But I found out very fast that, yeah, you need somebody who has the expertise to be able to design that. And I met him in uh, what, an incubator called uh, Creative Destruction Lab, uh, Benham, Javan Pass. And he, he has a PhD in theoretical physics in Connecticut as well. So we could talk to each other. But he also worked in a bank for more than seven years. So it was quite very easy for us to kind of bring our two expertise to found Yannick I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about optimization problems generally. Could you tell us what the term means and how you apply uh, your techniques to it? Usually for us physicists, it is useful for us to kind of map a problem into a configuration that we understand best. And one sweet thing is that we can view optimization problems as a search problem in a very complex landscape. Where in an optimization problem, typically you have a function you want to minimize. Everybody more or less understands functions, but for a physicist, I can see that function as an Hamiltonian. Directly when you tell me Hamiltonian, it's like, yay, I have a lot of tools in my toolbox to be able to deal with that. And I can view the Hamiltonian as a landscape. You could imagine, for example, in the Himalayas, you have a lot of hills and valleys. It can be kind of a very crazy landscape. And solving the optimization problem means, from a physics standpoint, is finding the ground state of the Hamiltonian that represents that optimization problem. But from a graphical point of view, it means finding the deepest valley in that mountain. And for you to find the deepest valley, you need to search, go up and down. And depending on how you search, you can be more efficient in finding the landscape. But if your landscape, for example, has a lot of Valleys, a lot of saddle point, as tall hills, right? And, and of maybe very wide hills, it might be difficult for you to be able to find uh, the deepest valleys. This is how the search problem or solving an optimization problem could be, could be seen. Would it be similar to, you know, if you wanted to find the deepest valley in the Himalayas, you could walk up and down all of these things, but uh, optimization is a way, is an attempt to not put in that sort of brute force work, but find the simplest route to the answer? Exactly. It's finding the simplest route to the answer, which definitely what you just described going up and down could be mimicked with algorithms. And it has been mimicked with algorithms. The most notable one is simulated tunnel, where going up and down is having some thermal energy to basically overcome barrier till hopefully, basically, you find the deepest minima. But imagine that you are going up and down with your car. Some moment, I mean, fuel is gone. What do you do? So in the simulation is when you are ramping down the temperature and then, yeah, there's no temperature, no fuel, which means no fuel, no kinetic energy, and then you get stuck in a local minimum, right? But you could think of a different paradigm, which people have thought of using quantum computers or using a one property of a quantum system that is called quantum tunneling, right? Then instead of going up and down the valley, you basically tunnel through the hills in the search of the deepest minimum. And then that hopefully will be a faster way for you to find a deepest minimum. This is not a crazy intuition uh, because when you think about the way we build tunnels nowadays, if you're like a building company and they say, okay, you need to build like either rail tracks or you need to build a road through a mountain. If you see that the mountain is, for example, very tall, but then the width is not that long, 
you're not going to build these tracks on top of the mountain and die. It doesn't make sense. You build mm-hmm. a tunnel, quantum tunneling. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the idea. But at the same time, if your mountain is, the height is not, it's not that high, but it has a very like long width. It doesn't make sense to build a tunnel. You just go over it. So classically, it's better. So that's the reason why most of the time people are not clear whether quantum tunneling or quantum annealing or classical annealing is better. It totally depends on the shape of the landscape and uh, the shape of the landscape depends on the hardness of the problem. You told us that your company, YANIQ, its main focus is using these techniques on the, on the problem of pricing derivatives. And that, that's a financial markets term that I barely understand. I believe derivatives are contracts between financial institutions that are based on assets within these contracts. That's about all I know. But it's a difficult problem. Um, <laughs> pricing derivatives, I know, is a very difficult thing. I'm hoping you can tell us why it's difficult, how it's currently done, and how you hope to do it better and more efficiently. Yeah, that, that's a very, very good question. Indeed, like, we are focusing on what is, is called over-the-counter derivatives that are mainly traded by very big financial institutions. And uh, some of them, uh, they are called like structural products. They are quite complicated to price. So the way it's currently being done is using Markov chain, Monte Carlo. And for you to be able to, to price them, you need to come up with a large number of possible financial scenarios. That obeys the law of large numbers. So the variance of your estimator, of your price, goes down with one over the square root of the number of scenarios that you can generate. Mm. So basically, you need to generate a lot of scenarios to come up with an accuracy that satisfies trader, for example. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of time. So we talked to some uh, traders working at banks. They told us that some of the books that have a lot of underlying products in, in one contract can take from 60 to 90 minutes time to price. And they need to price it a lot of time during the day, every day. So not only it takes a lot of time, since they have, like, they cannot go beyond a certain amount of time, which means they cannot price a certain number of scenarios. They have to reduce the number of scenarios after price. It means they cannot have the margin that they expect. So they told us that sometimes it could be mishedge of $10 million. That's the error bar of ten price. $10 million error bar. Exactly. I that's, wish I had that error bar. That's very well, huge. It depends which direction <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's in. <laughs> that's very huge. So our idea is basically, because we know that there are some methods that are more efficient than Markov Chain Monte Carlo, be able to price it faster and also more. So this is what we are hoping to, to achieve. So typically you want to find the deepest valley, but sometimes it's very hard. So if you want, you find a valley that is not so far from the deepest valley, you're fine. That's like, they call it near optimal solutions. Mm-hmm. That, that could be fine as well. Say for example, you're solving the traveling assessment problem, as, as, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. If you don't find the optimal path, okay, the salesman will not be angry if you find a near optimal path that saves him time and money. Right. <laughs> right? He probably won't know that it's not the actual yeah. optimal path. <laughs> he probably won't know. Uh, yeah, that problem essentially is how does a, a traveling salesperson hit a certain number of cities in the most efficient way possible? Mm-hmm. And it's just a very difficult mathematical problem, right? An, an optimization problem. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. definitely. So if it's not exactly solved, but approximately solved. So for the financial uh, case, what we are trying to do, 
So the crucial part of our approach is that we need to be able to model the financial problem of derivative pricing as an optimization. And then we can use quantum annealers, we can use all kinds of flavor of simulated annealing, uh, parallel tempering, whatever it is. We can use variational annealing, we can use MEM, just uh, variational optimization with neural network. So that's where you really need the financial expertise to be able to cast it as an optimization mm-hmm. problem. That's our approach, which is different from the approach people have been having before, because we know, for example, there are algorithms on the quantum computer to solve the price derivative, like quantum amplitude estimation on uh, measurement-based quantum computers. But we, we are not, we could use measurement-based quantum computers as well, because we know that the techniques like QA, quantum approximate optimization algorithm, can be used to solve an optimization problem on secret-based or measurement-based quantum computer. But uh, by looking at the current state of quantum device with the cubic cons, uh, with the noise level, we feel like for relevant real-world problems, we are not there. So we, our approach was mainly focused on an annealing-based approach, plus physics-inspired, plus uh, machine learning techniques. And the name of your company is really interesting. And I, I'm wondering if you'll share with us the story of what the name means and how you came up with it. Definitely. So I like the pickle so much and the fact that our kind of motto is kind of quantum intelligence. So I wanted to have something similar, but in my local language to be innovative and to differentiate yourself from, from everybody else. But I don't speak my local language very well. <laughs> So I kind of, I asked my whole family, my mom, my, my dad, my, my brothers, even my uncles and aunts to come up with a name that means quantum intelligence in my local tongue called Bassa. First, they told me that quantum, they don't know what it is, <laughs> even in English. <laughs> so we kind of put it out of the picture. I told them, okay, something like shell intelligence, intelligence of the future, something like that. They came up with different names and my mom won. She came with Yanni. If ye, that means intelligence, and Yanni tomorrow, which means the intelligence of, of the future, basically. And the Q at the end. So, <laughs> intelligence, future, quantum. Seems like a pretty great name for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. What, do you remember any of the names that uh, didn't make the cut? No, my God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> And so I know your company has grown a lot, as you alluded to, through this Creative Destruction Lab program. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about this program? Yes. So basically, it is like an incubator for quantum companies. In fact, they had a number that about 25% of the quantum computing companies pass through their program. Mm. Can you imagine? In the world world. So it's it's really like one of the main uh, incubators of quantum computing companies. I knew about it before because Roger is uh, very much involved. I think he's the academic director of CDL, so I already knew about that. And when I decided to create a company, I applied for the boot camp. So they have a boot camp usually during the summer for about a month, half-ish. And so I went there. There there are a lot of course of fundamentals of of quantum computing, uh, quantum physics. What are the current states of quantum architectures? There are so many different qubits, way of building a qubit. What are the current business cases? Uh, what are the potential advantages and things like that? 
And there you have a whole cohort of quantum enthusiasts. People reform, you could start a company or you could, because some of them are startups, they could join a company. I got a lot of like offers, for example, <laughs> during the bootcamp. But then, yeah, so the, the idea of, of that is basically helping people who have ideas on using quantum computing technology to solve real world problems, to basically groom them, help them navigating the, the landscape. And I know you have a lot of experience working in the academic side, but probably working in industry, I guess there's a whole new skill set that comes with working in this new field. Were there any lessons that were particularly useful from this camp as you tried to build this bridge between academia and industry? Definitively. I still want to do research. For me, the most shocking truth is that businesses don't think like researchers. At the end of the day, they don't care whether you are using state-of-art technology or new technology. They just want you to solve the problem. And so for me, when I think about, oh, if I, for example, improve an algorithm of an order of 12 of magnitudes, I'm excited. If it does not translate into them earning more money, they don't care about that, right? So it, it makes me have a different approach of on doing research for business. I have to do research, yes. I, I need to think about using the best possible tools, yes. But at the same time, I need to think about potential business advantage, which we don't think about. Of course, we don't think about that. We're mm -hmm. most interested in solving exciting problems. It's like optimizing a different function. Exactly. <laughs> was the term boot camp applicable? Was it, was it pretty intense? Oh, yeah. It was like, <laughs> it was crazy. And in fact, the craziest time of the bootcamp was I had a two-day hackathon. I think I probably slept like three hours during <laughs> those two days. You had to come up with an idea to solve a relevant business problem using a quant. In two days? In two days. And any problem or they told you a certain problem? Any problem of your choice. So they had some problems that maybe some hints, but any problem using some of the architectures that were made available to, to us and yeah, programming and come up with results. So there was only the, the, the not only the scientific, but you need to come up with a business pitch, like do some quick market research, show that, come up with the numbers that this is a relevant problem and have a short video of making your pitch. Hang on, you got two days to develop quantum algorithms and a business pitch and a video? Yes. Okay, so you... When did you get those three hours of sleep? Uh, <laughs> I was working with Ben till midnight. I think. <laughs> did you and just crash at the end? So we stopped talking around maybe midnight or one, and then I kept working till probably three and got up at six and started working again. And what did you actually end up developing? Oh, we, we basically wrote a code on the D-Wave machine to solve a portfolio optimization. And we had to push it on GitHub. So it's, it's available on, on CDL GitHub. So hold on. Not only did you have to come up with an algorithm and a business plan, but then you had to push this out and make it available to other people. Yeah, publicly use. available. Yeah. And you mentioned D-Wave. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Oh, yes. So D-Wave is a, a quantum computing company. It was the first one to actually commercialize a quantum computer. And so they are, they are mostly focused on uh, annealing-based approach that is solving optimization problem, even though recently they announced that they, they are starting to build also secret-based quantum computers. So one of the cool things that they did, and a lot of quantum computing companies are doing now, 
is if I want to run simulations on a quantum computer, I don't need to go and buy 10 million, whatever the cost is, Thank and goodness. come and <laughs> install it. At Perimeter, you can have access to it through cloud. And so you have an API call, and you just yeah, pass in parameters, and it spits you back basically the results. And you can even see which qubit you have been using the quantum processor to basically solve your problem. So, there, there so you are, can implement your algorithms on D-Wave, but in the cloud, you can do it from anywhere? Definitely, yeah. It's amazing. Um, not anywhere. It depends on where they have the, the clouds deployed. I think now you can do it in North America and Europe. South America, I'm not so sure. Africa, I'm not so sure. Probably in Japan as well. So as they are expanding, they provide that cloud service. And as you've said, Estelle, it seems like there's just so many different priorities that you have to balance when you're doing this work at kind of the intersection of academia and industry. And we had a grad student from here in Waterloo send in a question about that. This is Matthew Shen, a student at IQC and Perimeter. I'm wondering, how do you balance coming up with novel research ideas versus staying focused on your specific startup objectives? Nice question. Very, very important question. I ask myself that question every single day. <laughs> Are you able to balance these things or is it always a juggling act? In the beginning, it was so hard. It was really, really, really very hard. Now I'm kind of equilibrating towards dividing my time half-half, not every week, but yeah, that's what, what I'm trying to do. Because for the company, definitively, I am, I'm doing like an application of my techniques. But we are in a very fast-paced milieu whereby you need to be aware of whatever is state of art. So you need to be on top of your game as far as research is concerned. So I need to keep an open eye on, on the research world as well. That's it must why be changing every day. Exactly. So it's not as before that I could read archive paper every morning. I cannot do that anymore. <laughs> I can attend journal clubs, I attend conferences, and I talk to collaborators to, to keep in touch with, with what is happening as far as research is concerned. I was groomed as, as a PhD student that a problem is interesting when it's hard. I mean, if it's not hard, what's the point? <laughs> so I really like taking on very hard problems. And if they are relevant to an everyday person, when you get stuck on a really hard problem, what do you do to, to push through it, to, to get past that obstacle? I do it very badly, usually <laughs> almost depressed. <laughs> Anyhow, but uh, yeah, typically it's just take it a step back and uh, try to do something else. I mean, go boxing. Boxing? Go swimming or running or something different. Sometimes it involves talking to collaborators to get some of the ideas that, that they have and coming back to it with fresh eyes. So you've been telling us a lot of stories of things that have happened in the last few years. And I'm wondering if we can maybe go back a little bit further. Could you tell us the story of how you first got into being a scientist or how you first decided to pursue that type of path? I have a very non-typical path. So becoming a scientist, yeah. So right away, I should make a disclaimer. I didn't plan to be a physicist. <laughs> right? this, this wasn't the lifelong dream? Nope, it wasn't at all my <laughs> lifelong dream. Yeah, well, I wanted to do naval architecture. So I was uh, advised during my high school 
that for me to do naval architecture, I needed to have a, a bachelor in physics. So I got sorry, naval architecture is designing ship. ships. Okay, yeah, it's very very different. <laughs> but maybe you're gonna use your methods for uh, naval architecture next. I guess we'll see. Yeah, why not? <laughs> maybe there's an optimization problem in naval architecture. Oh, uh, never actually, I don't know, but definitely in the maritime industry on uh, ship route, there is mm. uh, an opportunity for that. I even thought about that, either ship route or ship loading. For example, right. imagine that you have a big cargo, he has to load, I don't know, thousands of different containers on the cargo. What is the best way for you to do that, to optimize the space? I actually wrote an algorithm that VNA, yeah. Why ship building and ship architecture? Where did this come from? Since my mom worked in the maritime industry, I was very much influenced by her. So I wanted to do a job that was related to, to sea, ocean, right? But I wanted to do a technical job, something that I could use some of the, the things I was interested in, mathematics, uh, physics. So I, I found that naval architecture was the best. But I was not well advised. I, I found out that you cannot do naval architecture with a bachelor in physics. Then I wanted to do computer science after when I found out I couldn't be a naval, naval architect. But unfortunately, that year in my um, homeschool, they didn't open up a master in uh, computer science. The only available master was in physics. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I need to go to school. <laughs> Let me just register for the master in physics. And mm. I like it. It was very easy for me to do. And uh, I think I got first class and then I got a scholarship to go to Italy to do it. It sounds like you're still interested in, in shipping and ships. Is that an ongoing fascination for you, the maritime industry? No, I think it, after a while, I was so disappointed, I should say. I was really, really, really disappointed uh, when I found that I was just misoriented. So it kind of died out. But for computer science, yeah, I'm mostly programming now. Almost all of my day, I'm writing code. I, I kind of brought together my, my interest in uh, computer science and programming in my physics job. Well, we actually got a question about how to combine programming with research in physics. So could we play the next question? Hi, so I'm Hassan Kosar from India. And uh, my question is a little more career related. How do the fields of programming and physics mix like uh, simulation, machine learning? And uh, is it necessary to learn programming when going into the field of physics? From the first part of your question, if you think about machine learning for physics, you definitely need programming for that. Right? But if you have to think about physics in general, it really depends on which field of physics. There are some fields of physics where not a heavy amount of programming is needed. Some, even none, just need to do some kind of analytical work. But when you think about the field of physics generally as a whole, my feeling is that a little bit skill on just knowing how to plot functions is, is important. Just knowing Python, which is very easy to learn, should be sufficient to get by. But if you want to enter into the field of computational physics, yes, you, you need know how to program a little bit more and nowadays it's really easy for example for machine learning there are a lot of libraries you can just use i think about tensorflow pytorch to write prototype of your model and to test it very quickly you have things like google collab you can use gpus to simulate very fast things and even get some results so i feel like it shouldn't be seen as a very huge barrier 
programming is, is actually very fun. But my advice is that you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, you're a physicist. So you need to sharpen your physical intuition. Uh, I give you the advice um, one of my lecturers gave me when I was doing my PhD is you first of all need to take your pen and paper and figure out the physics behind the problem. And once you do that, then yeah, you can take your computer and try to write some code. You've used the term physical intuition a couple of times. I'm hoping you can explain what you mean by that. Physical intuition is based, I would say, on uh, the understanding on how nature works and the understanding of some physical principles. Take like the Heisenberg principle or quantum mechanics. If you know exactly the position of a particle, you cannot know exactly the, the momentum of that particle. So when you think about a problem, you need to have these kind of things on, on the back of your mind. And that will help you not only interpret results, it will help you design models to maybe benchmark something specific about the model. It's very, very important to do top class research. Yeah, that's, that's my impression. You've attended workshops in Africa about promoting women in science and just promoting science in Africa overall. Can you tell us why you wanted to attend those and, and what you hope people got out of your presentation or your attendance? I always find myself living in a superposition of two almost orthogonal worlds. Unfortunately, we know that science in Africa is a little bit lagging co compared to the West, but for women it's been worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's really worse because there are a lot of cultural apprehension of it's changing it's, it's really changing but still sending women to do what is called hard fields typically people think that okay maths physics is just for men even when they are trying to be progressive even here in the west for women we see that as you go up the ladder you see more less and less women it's even stronger in africa because there's more commitment that is demanded. And the role of the woman in, uh, in family, it demands a lot of your time. That makes it very hard for you to do top-class research. Starting to have these conversations, one of the feelings that I've, I've been having is that it has to start first with women scientists, African women scientists, the mindset, to kind of recalibrate the mindset that it is possible for me to do science. I don't necessarily need to, to quit. It is possible. And, and from there, like, put together policies. I, I feel like this is very important. Also educate our male counterparts, starting with our families, to really change that mindset. With me in my career, I had a lot of instances of people telling me that, why are you doing a PhD? You should be married and, and having kids and <laughs> preparing for your husband. <laughs> Right, this kind of thing. But I, I was educated in a house where my mom told me that it's a female, you can do whatever a man can do. I already had that in my mindset, but other people, they don't hear that kind of thought. It can, can really affect them. But starting having this, to have this conversation, we, we hope to see change. Is that what you're trying to do when you go there? You're trying to help with this recalibration process for individuals? Even not necessarily when I go there, whenever I happen to interact with female scientists which, uh, from Africa, which happen once in a while, 
yes, trying to have those conversations, change of the mindset. It doesn't have to be this way. I read that your father, he'd wanted to get a PhD in physics, but he didn't because there are more practical paths. Uh, he chose engineering, I believe. Yes. Actually, it was not too much of his willing. So I, my father was, he is still very smart. He was very smart. So he had um, a government grant after his high school degree to go to France, to basically to study. He was studying physics. And then he wanted to do a PhD in physics, but the government was paying him his stupid stipend. He's like, we don't need physics. We need engineers. For him not to lose his scholarship, he had to, to move to, to engineering. But then he really encouraged me a lot to do physics. So what was his reaction when you obtained your PhD in physics? He was very happy. In fact, he told a story during my PhD party of the fact that when I was doing first year bachelor in physics back home, so I did in high school French education. I studied in French. I mean, naturally, I'm like French speaker, my mother tongue, quote unquote. But then I moved to an English university in the western part of Cameroon. It was very, very hard. I needed first to understand the English before understanding the physics. It was, I had a dictionary all the time when I was going to the lecture. So it was really, really bad. One month after starting my bachelor in physics, I passed an engineering concours in the French side of Cameroon to become an engineer. So I called my dad. I was like, I'm stopping this thing. It's not going. I need to go and do engineering. My dad told me that, no, Francophones have been able to go to that school and graduate. You're going to stay there. I was so mad at my dad. I was so angry. <laughs> But after a couple of months, I picked up the English and I did very well. And he told the story during my, my PhD party that I hold strong and now she's a PhD, she's a doctor. So that was sweet. That's beautiful. And Estelle, you've told us so many nice pieces of your story starting in childhood. And um, I know you kind of have alluded to the fact of how you made the decision to come here to Perimeter for a postdoc after your PhD. But I know that you actually had a lot of options for what to do after you had a PhD. And I always look back fondly when you were making that decision because you and I actually talked before you came here. And so I always like to tell people I was one of the first to meet you here at Perimeter. So could That's you tell right. us a little bit more about how you made that decision? Yes, definitely. So one thing I wanted to, to make sure is uh, that people I will be working with, especially uh, Roger Melko, was... Not, I already knew he's a great scientist, but I wanted to know that he's a good person to work with. So I wrote to you and sent you an email and you were very nice to have a Skype discussion with me. And I was just convinced. There's also Giacomo who sent me an email, replied to my email. He told me that it's amazing to work with, with Roger. So that, was, that convinced me that PI is a great place. But at the same time, I had opportunities, uh, one in Alberta, but the cold canceled it out. <laughs> there, there was one at Microsoft, which was... Um, Actually, the most interesting uh, one, I had one also in California, which was kind of interesting because we have collaboration with people at NASA. But then I, I'll be working mostly on developing further the algorithms that I learned during my PhD. At Microsoft, I would have been applying the algorithm I developed during my PhD on real world problems. That was extremely exciting for me. But I wouldn't have learned something really new would have been mostly application. Whereas here at Perimeter, I would have enlarged my research interest to include machine learning and neural networks. 
So that is uh, basically the reason why I chose to come to PI. I, I don't regret it at all. And Estelle, now at Perimeter, your title is research scientist. But when you first came here, you had the title of a postdoctoral fellow under the name Francis Kofi Alote Fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit about this fellowship and how it was named? So Francis Kofi Alote, um, unfortunately, he passed away about five years ago. He was really a monument of an African scientist who literally inspired and trained generations of physicists on, on the African continent. So he actually did uh, a graduate degree at Imperial College London under uh, the Nobel Prize winner Abdul Salam, who later on created this famous, uh, the Abdul Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics. And then he did his PhD at Princeton under Robert Oppenheimer. So the did other, his PhD with Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, so he was <laughs> the first Ghanaian to do almost everything, the first Ghanaian to earn it. PhD in mathematical physics, the first full professor in mathematical physics in, in Ghana. And uh, as far as uh, research is concerned, uh, he's mostly known for this, this allotic formalism, which is basically a way to detect soft X-rays in material like lithium or other alkaline materials. And yeah, so he kind of I mean, he has a single authored paper on that, which is uh, pretty neat. And he got, I think, a medal for that. But besides his research contribution, he had, he was member of a lot of international bodies. He created, he was one of the founding members of the African Physical Society. He was a board member at ICTP and a lot of other institutions. And he did a lot of work as well in Ghana, like, creating institutes and fostering like science in, in the continent. So it was quite an honor for me to have a fellowship and name after him. Almost more than my shoulders could bear. <laughs> right mm -hmm. there, but it was good also for people in the West to see that uh, because typically you are not familiar with that kind of a name. You think more like, I don't know, Einstein, Dirac, Schrodinger, but it's, it's good to see that we also have, if we want, we can groom up top class scientists. So to, how did I come up with the name? So when I was coming to PI, Neil Truck actually gave me the choice, interestingly enough, to choose which name I wanted. And yeah, I, I chose him. Now you've kind of expanded this set of tools that you have through your postdoc, and now you're getting to work on maybe some of these real world applications. And I really liked the thing you said early about, earlier about how often in papers, academics are claiming that their methods could be applicable to all of these potential huge real world problems, but maybe people don't always really put the effort into solving those. And it seems like that's really what you're trying to do now in your work, which is really impressive. And I'm yes. just curious what other real problems you have in mind to look at next. Oh yeah, maybe not to look at next, kind of the biggest problem I have in mind to solve is protein folding. Protein folding? Yes. What is protein folding? So basically a protein, to be functioning, it has to have a certain conformation. It can take millions different conformations. When you're doing protein design, you need mm -hmm. to find a configuration where it works. They call it like when the protein is native, in, this, in, in its native state. 
or in its folded state. And usually it starts from an unfolded state and the path through the folded state is like you going through the Himalayas. It's a very, very hard Peaks problem. and valleys. Exactly, yeah. exactly. With a lot of like local minimal salary points, it's really hard. And not only is her hard problem, it's very relevant. Drug design to help in us like have better drugs and, and help in the health sector. So this is also it's having a very strong impact, but it's also very hard to solve. So this is one of the problems that I'm thinking. I know that the approach we are, ha- we are having now is really to develop state of optimization algorithms that, of course, in, in the company right now, we apply it in the financial domain but that we can easily export to other domains, like in the domain of protein folding, where the only subroutine or function we will have to change is just the Hamilton. But then we will need to have domain knowledge in how, how do you write the protein folding Hamiltonian that actually is not a minimalistic model, it's not an easy model, but it's, it's really a model of a real-world problem. I cannot... Right. You really need somebody who works in, in either quantum chemistry or by biotechnological bio, bio sector and things. Like to be able so, just to, to see if I'm understanding right now, when you're working Benham, your uh, co-founder is kind of bringing this expertise of the finance side. So you would kind of need someone analogous to Benham for this uh, protein exactly. folding problem. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, we, we even talk about that with Benham, that once we will uh, be able to create value with those algorithms, we start exploring what we call in business jargon, other verticals. Well, it seems like there's a lot of potential options for the future, and I'm really excited to see what you're going to optimize next. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for uh, chatting with us today. It was really fun. My pleasure. Thanks so much for stepping inside the perimeter. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a conversation. We've interviewed a lot of really brilliant scientists whose research spans from the quantum to the cosmos, and we can't wait for you to hear more. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Great science is for everyone, so help us spread the word.